Don't be scared. It's only Daniel. Greg isn't here to hurt you. I know we've all agreed you only want to hear from us once a month, but we're six months into a global pandemic and rules are meaningless. I'm here because Greg made a special recording for the Glendale Public Library on the history of displacement in Los Angeles as part of a run-up to a virtual author talk through the Glendale Public Library with Eric Nussbaum about his book Stealing Home, Los Angeles, the Dodgers, and the Lives Caught in Between. You can tune into this at 6.30 p.m. on Thursday, September 24th, which is next week unless you're listening to it that week Uh, but you need to register in advance on the Glendale Public Library website it's free to attend this is part of their Be the Change series and it will be moderated by LA Times columnist and well-known author in his own right Gustavo Ariano and they will be discussing Eric's book and the story of Chavez Ravine in general just so you're not confused this is not at all a regular episode of LA Meekly but rather something Greg did for the library that we wanted to share with you because you love us you told me you love us full disclosure I have a connection to both Eric and Gustavo. I've known Eric for a very long time. We met about 16 years ago on a trip to Poland and we drove, we're sitting near each other and we drove by a KFC in Poland and he said Krakow fried chicken and I thought it was so funny. I'm still talking about it today. He's also a great sports writer and author in general, so you should definitely check out his book if you haven't already. If you're a fan of this podcast, you're going to want to read that book. And my connection to Gustavo is that I was a contestant in a pie-making contest like seven or eight years ago at LACMA, and he was one of the judges, and I don't think he liked my pie. And I'm still talking about that today also. Anyway, again, to tune in, this is going to be 6.30 p.m. on Thursday, September 24th through the Glendale Public Library. You can access it on the Glendale Public Library website. That's an author talk with Eric Nussbaum, moderated by Gustavo Ariano. You're going to want to check it out. Enjoy what Greg has done for the Glendale Public Library, and we'll see you in a couple weeks for our usual nonsense. Okay, bye. Hi, I'm Greg Gonzalez, and I'm one of the two hosts of a local history podcast called LA Meekly. It's just me here today for a special kind of episode that runs concurrent with a talk that Eric Nossbaum is giving to the Glendale Library Arts and Culture about his wonderful book, Stealing Home, Los Angeles, the Dodgers, and our lives caught in between. It's a special story, but one not unfamiliar in Los Angeles, a city where the land is constantly being fought for and its history paved a dozen times over. The decimation of the neighborhood known as Chavez Ravine and the people who lived there was only one in a long series of stories in Los Angeles of people being displaced and their homes being replaced. Los Angeles is going through a major housing crisis at the moment. The cost of living has gone up while wages remain stagnant and the available and affordable spaces for the constant flux of transplants means long-time low-income residents are on the edge of homelessness or being displaced forced to move out of state to survive. The housing crisis is a tangled web of misery, gentrification, displacement, and homelessness. Those who have and have not. Those who live and those who survive. Statistics and hypotheses are not my strong suit. 
looking at stories for understanding is. I offer you three. I like to start at the beginning, but where to even begin with a quiche? The indigenous people who called this land theirs for thousands of years before the Spanish came exploring. It's the same story that all indigenous people tell, not only across our country, but on every continent. Life was complex, full of rituals and hardships, but simple in that. The coastal indigenous people of California were, for the most part, peaceful because their resources were abundant. They were hunter-gatherers with plenty of things to hunt and gather. And then the explorers came. Juan Rodriguez first came to the west coast in 1542 and was met with the curious inhabitants of the land. The expedition in 1769, led by trusted Spanish military officer Gaspar de Portola, would be more official. The Spanish crown sought to secure and protect the land from Spanish fur traders heading south. After the Spanish laid waste to Mexico and its way of life, they came to California to spread the word of God and to stake claim on the new land, New Spain. Missions were erected along the coast as not only military sites, but as sacred religious grounds, where padres can convert the indigenous people to Christianity. The expedition was led out of San Diego, through present-day La Habra, over the Puente Hills, through San Gabriel Valley, and on August 2nd, arrived along the river. Upon arriving in the area that is now Los Angeles, they were greeted by a party of Keech men who presented the Spanish with gifts, baskets filled with pine nuts and strings of beautiful shell discs. The Spanish gave them tobacco and glass beads. Three years later, the San Gabriel Mission would be founded, collecting keech from around the entire area, converting them against their will, and making them the primary workforce and prisoners. In 1781, Felipe de Neve, the Spanish governor of California, selected 11 families to make the trek to Alta California. These 11 families were the original settlers of Los Angeles, 23 adults, 21 children. When they arrived, the Keech were still there, in their village along the river. When the settlers began building the city, the Keech aided them. They helped them build the Zanja Madre, which is the mother ditch that would move the route of the river so it could flow into the settlement. They labored in the fields and worked as muleteers or water carriers, among many other roles. But they continued to live on their own, aside from the settlement, the future metropolis. Our idea of the city center is based on where the 11 families first settled. La Placita, later be known as Albero Street Plaza in downtown LA, their original site. But long before they had built this pueblo, the Keech village, Yongna, was already there, or at least neighbored it. Yongna had several dozen dome-shaped huts scattered along the area, along the west bank of the river. It housed several hundred residents. An elder sycamore tree stood in Yongna, standing six stories tall, providing the highest-ranking Keech members with shade. It was their council tree. Yangna had been their home for thousands of years. The tree was said to be 400 years old. Is this how we measure time when it comes to conquering indigenous groups? The clock starts when the change comes, and from that point on, it never stops. In 1821, Mexico had won independence from Spain and secularized the mission-known land. The indigenous peoples were free from the confinement, but found themselves now a people designed to be working class. Some of the converted people returned to Yongna to work in the Pueblo. Others found work on ranches or in mountains. It seemed like the farther from home, the better off they were. In 1824, Los Angeles' only German resident, Johann Gronenberg, or as he would later be named, Juan Domingo, 
shipwrecked at San Pedro Harbor. Instead of rebuilding and setting back out to sea, he decided to stay in Los Angeles, a city with obvious potential for growth. Four years later, Grodenberg purchased the parcel of land where Young Nas stood. Now that he owned it, all the kids who lived there were trespassing. They were then evicted and forced to move. They resettled not too far away to modern-day commercial and Alameda Street. When that land was purchased in 1845, they were once again forced to vacate that land and live along the river. The council tree is on the plot of land owned by Jean-Louis Vigne, vineyard owner. It was said that he priced his sacred tree at $20. When the Americans came to the area and fought and won the land from the Mexicans in 1848, it meant that the original people, the Keech, wouldn't even have a good foot to start off with the way they had with the original settlers. They were treated by the Americans as the lowest class of citizen. In 1863, a vicious outbreak of smallpox took a toll on the residents of LA. This outbreak all but destroyed the indigenous population. In 1889, a branch from the 400-year-old sycamore tree broke off and landed on a truck owned by the Meyer and Zobalan Brewing Company, whose building was now housed there. Furious, Joseph Meyer had the rest of the limbs of the tree sawed off. Six years later, the rest of the Keech Council tree was cut up and sold as firewood and souvenirs. It is estimated that at the beginning of the 1770s, when Spain sought to settle in Alta California, there were around 60,000 residents of different tribes. Over the next 50 years, the population plummeted by two-thirds. Yangna, the village that for thousands of years was a home to the original people of this area, was gone. Many different people speculate what now sits atop it. City Hall, Union Station, the 101 Freeway, LA Civic Center. In truth, it doesn't matter what symbol of an American metropolis has buried it. What matters is, those who stand in the way of the conqueror's progress and prosperity are crushed. Landmarks toppled and people scattered. Los Angeles is such a big widespread city within such a big, widespread county that Angelinos can be completely oblivious to other parts of town. Terminal Island feels like one of those areas. But even lifelong residents of LA who can point out Terminal Island on a map might be surprised to find that it was not always industrial. It was once home to a quaint neighborhood known as Fish Harbor, populated predominantly by Japanese and Japanese Americans, the Japanese-born Issei, and their children, the second-generation US-born Nisei. Terminal Island is a man-made island, artificially formed by two smaller islands with great names, Dead Man's Island and a mudflat once known to Spanish explorers as Isla Raza de Buena Gente, roughly translated Island of the Good Race People, it later became known as Rattlesnake Island to the snakes that could be found there after a torrential storm. The two smaller islands formed Terminal Island, named so because of the Los Angeles Terminal Railway built there at the turn of the century that connected the coast to the city. The island is nestled between Long Beach Harbor and San Pedro. It was once a picturesque seaside area for the wealthy, who would lounge at the beach, take the ferry for a nickel ride to San Pedro, or watch regatta races from the South Coast Yacht Club. But in 1901, Japanese fishermen discovered abalone in White Point by Paulus Verdes, and with that, 
the abalone industry in Southern California was created along the LA coastline from Santa Monica to San Pedro. As the area became more industrial, the natural environment succumbed to it. Harbor dredging, outcropping, and the resort feel of the area was transformed. To help separate the shipping industry from the fish industry in the bustling harbor, a village was constructed. Breakwaters built to protect against strong waves, canneries and piers were erected, and housing units, over 300, were created for the workers and their families. This area became Fish Harbor. The wealthy residents of the seaside area sold their homes to the people working the canneries as slowly hundreds of working class people moved the area. And before you say, well, weren't the wealthy residents this place? No, they chose to leave. The demographic of the area was shifting closer to those who worked in the industry, and the fishing industry was, in this area at this time, predominantly Japanese. Japanese fishermen dominated the industry in San Pedro and were savvy in dealings with the Anglo-Americans, so of course, in 1905 logic, they had to be segregated. Because how can you create a white-owned fishing empire if you don't cheat? They were soon segregated to work exclusively on Terminal Island. It did little to deter the drive for the American dream. But fishing was only one aspect of the abalone industry. Workers could still locate and identify, harvest, package, and distribute fish. When word traveled to Japan about how one could be successful in America in the fish industry, the population of Japanese citizens exploded. And within a span of 35 years, it went from 1,000 Japanese residents to about 25,000 and rising until 1941, when the population was counted at over 37,000. By 1918, canneries such as the American Tuna Company, the Southern Fish Company, and Van Camp Seafood, now we call them Chicken of the Sea, employed hundreds of residents of the area. They work there, they live there, they raise their families there. In the beginning, Terminal Island was an all-male community, reflecting the work pool and the nature of the company housing. But soon, women and children began to move in as more women were joining the workforce in the canneries. Back then, there was only one road and a ferry that would connect the mainland to Terminal Island. A touch isolated, the lives that were lived here were wholly unique to anywhere in Los Angeles or Japan an insulated American experience. You can go to grocery stores stocked with Japanese goods, hang out at pool halls, beauty parlors, ice cream parlors, cafes. The community would meet at Fishman's Hall for social activities, the same hall where judo and kendo were taught or watch samurai films from Japan at the theater. Children would attend Wallazer Elementary School. The local church offered Japanese language classes. Teenagers would take the ferry to San Pedro to attend high school. Families would lounge around Brighton Beach. Baseball was brought to the island from the mainland. Girls' Day and Boys' Day, two Japanese national holidays, were celebrated in Fish Harbor. A dialect known as Terminal Island Lingo a mixture of Japanese and English, was getting to be more common in Fish Harbor. The community of Terminal Island shared more than proximity. They shared old traditions and new experiences that were completely different. It all ended in December of 1941, after the Japanese army led a surprise attack on a naval base in Pearl Harbor, officially launching the reluctant United States into the throes of World War II and making every Japanese citizen of this country an enemy in the national eye. Terminal Island was on the radar of the Housing Un-American Activities Committee, known by their acronym HUWAC, for a long time. 
not only because of their nationality, but the location of the island was near a naval base, as well as the island being connected to one of the biggest ports on the west coast. Because of these things, the government did not hesitate. Hours after the attack, the FBI went to Fish Harbor and detained all the Issei, the Japanese board men, as well as any boat owners and community leaders of Terminal Island. All fishing operations were shut down. Any boats that were out fishing at the time of the attack were radioed back to the shore where the Coast Guard raided their boats and the men were taken away. The homes of the community leaders were searched and the contraband was confiscated. Heavily armed American soldiers were run in jeeps and patrol Terminal Island around the clock. A week later, Terminal Island was turned into a full-on military area. Whoever hadn't been detained so far, now homeless families of mostly women and children, had to seek shelter. They would have to find friends and families that would take them in. It was two more months before President Franklin D. Roosevelt signed Executive Order 9066 in February of 1942, which would send 120,000 Japanese Americans around the country to internment camps for the duration of the war. The Japanese residents were given 48 hours to completely vacate, and the residents of Fish Harbor, the once idyllic community, they were forced to sell their possessions and whatever else they could that couldn't get packed up and moved. Fishing boats and equipment were left behind. Homes and businesses were abandoned. Some were able to sell their furniture, fishing gear, boats, and other items, but due to the time frame, they had to be sold at ridiculously low prices to those who were clearly taking advantage of the situation. Of the ethnic Japanese people forced into internment camps, about 62% were Nisei and Sansei, second and third generation Japanese, who were American citizens by virtue of being born in the U.S. The other 38% were Issei, Japanese immigrants, who were either naturalized American citizens or resident aliens. Some were sent to barracks built at the Santa Anita racetracks, others to a camp in Manzanar in the Owens Valley which was a property owned by the L.A. Department of Water and Power to secure water rights between the Owens Valley and Los Angeles in what many Owens Valley residents saw as a grand act of swindlery. The Japanese Americans would remain there for three years, their lives in Los Angeles all but destroyed. And the quaint, hybrid Japanese-American life that was once created on Terminal Island was eradicated, gone with only scattered traces that had ever existed. The fishing boats were either taken by the military, repossessed, stolen, or destroyed. The rest of the former residents were scattered. Some canneries were still operating. The elementary school building remained. It was now used by the Marines. An entire way of life gone. And as you know, they were not the last. The first modern freeway was opened in Los Angeles in 1940, the Arroyo Seco Parkway, later becoming the end piece of the 110 freeway. If you've ever taken this freeway, you'll agree. It certainly seems like the first. Around the same time, the Homeowners Loan Corporation, the HOLC, completed a map. The HOLC was part of Roosevelt's New Deal, and it was meant to relieve distressed Americans going through the economic hardships during the Great Depression. The National Housing Act of 1934 was enacted in hopes to reduce the foreclosure rate during the Depression and make the housing and mortgages more affordable for low-income workers. To ensure the mortgage payments didn't default, the HOLC created a city survey program which would gather data about neighborhoods from over 200 cities in America. This would be the Residential Security Map. 
The information was gathered and the results created a rating system that graded areas of the city based on both color and letter grades. So this is how it worked. A green areas represented the best investments for homeowners and banks as it was a neighborhood of businessmen. B blue areas of the city were for white collar workers in desirable neighborhoods. C yellow areas were designated for white working class in declining neighborhoods and D red areas were hazardous almost industrial living situations and it was an area designated for immigrants people of color and the lowest of the working class white residents. The term redlining refers to these HOLC residential security maps. The information and results were, of course, incredibly biased, but their effects would be real and long-lasting. The ability to buy or refinance was more difficult if you lived in a D-red area, if you were redlined. People trying to purchase homes in redlined areas were denied loans and home insurance. Property values drop, the landlords don't even bother with the properties they own, City services go underfunded, and all the while, crime increases. Racial restrictive housing covenants also existed, prohibiting people of color from purchasing homes in certain areas. These covenants were agreed upon between white homeowners and real estate companies to keep Los Angeles suburbs, as the boosters of the city promised, white. This is how Los Angeles was able to segregate without using the word segregation. Housing discrimination cripples any opportunity for residents of redline areas to advance. This was Los Angeles, as it was many other cities across the country. As the country boomed during World War II, cars were beginning to change the way Americans traveled, and highways began to be built. By 1941, President Roosevelt saw the country needed connective tissue between states, and an interstate system was born. In 1944, the Federal Highway Act allocated funds for California to build close to 2,000 miles of highways across the state. Urban planners throughout the U.S. worked in accordance with private interests, and they all looked to the Federal Highway Act as a means of renewing the deteriorating condition of American inner cities. Urban planners had little or no official interest in providing inner city housing for those residents displaced by freeway construction. Huge sections of central city land could be cleared for other uses. Downtown business leaders and real estate developers clamored for central city development since they didn't know if they could survive families moving to the suburbs, away from the business districts. The Urban Land Institute, the ULI, which was a national organization for real estate developers and builders, advocated urban freeway constructions as a means of slum clearance and urban renewal. Groups like the ULI and the HOLC saw this as an opportunity to erase the slums from the city. In 1953, the Division of Highways announced its plans to route the Golden State Freeway, the 5, through the densely populated east side of the LA River, which contained areas like Boyle Heights, Hollenbeck Heights, and Belvedere. The ULI looked at the slum areas of LA and saw freeways in their place, so they coordinated their plans for construction that way. The residents of Boyle Heights fought the imposition of the freeway. Community leaders, which included city councilmen, state assemblymen, newspaper editors, religious officials, and small business owners, all pushed against the construction of the freeways. They had the help and support of Councilman Edward Roybal, who grew up in Boyle Heights and now represented the area. He said the population density in Boyle Heights was unequal to any other in the Southland, in a good way, and that some 15 language groups and nearly as many races are represented in Boyle Heights. These good citizens have been there for over 50 years living in multicultural harmony. Not only was a freeway going to destroy homes and schools 
convalescent homes and churches, is going to kick away this beautiful multicultural hive. The Anti-Golden State Freeway Committee, led by Marie Tubbs and had invited Royable to be chair, was formed to come up with strategies to halt or disrupt the construction of the freeway. They spread awareness by sponsoring and organizing rallies and reaching out to local publications. Agents from the Division of Highways were sent out to appraise property value of the area, while Tubbs and Royble proposed to the city council a new route. Over 350 residents of Boyle Heights and Hollenbeck Heights attended a meeting for rehearing in Sacramento at the end of 1953. They acquired 15,000 signatures of opponents to the freeway construction and presented it to a commission. But the resistance did not work. The dream of the future was too powerful to save the neighborhoods that laid in its path. Construction would begin in March of 1957 of the first segment of the newly renamed Santa Monica Freeway, the 10, over the LA River. Land acquisition for the Golden State Freeway's right-of-way started in 1958, and by 1961, families living in houses that the state had purchased and then rented back to their occupants received orders to move. 2,000 homes were destroyed in Boyle Heights. After the Golden State Freeway split up Boyle Heights, five more freeways would push through, which includes two massive city interchanges less than two miles apart. The Pomona Freeway of the 60 was the next that followed, raising the Belvedere area of East LA. The 101, the 5, the 60, the 710, and the 10 all run through East LA. The Community Redevelopment Agency would step in under the guise of urban renewal and attempt to modernize the area in question, pretty much vacating the previous residents and using the land for whatever the city or private investors wanted. The neighborhoods in Boyle Heights that were destroyed were never replicated. Some people managed to move to the suburbs, some people stayed in areas that became ghettos after the freeways were constructed. The freeways encircling LA's central business district are linked by four major interchanges, each of which stands on what used to be residential areas, once identified as slums by the HOLC. The interchanges are these. The East LA interchange linking the Golden State Freeway the 5, the Pomona Freeway the 60, and the Santa Monica Freeway the 10, which were all completed in the early 60s. This interchange stands on a former neighborhood of Boyle Heights, which had been redlined by the HOLC. The intersection of the Harbor Freeway at the 110 and the Santa Monica Freeway at the 10 in the southwest corner of downtown LA displaced a thoroughly blighted neighborhood with a 50% African-American population, as well as, as well as a significant population of Mexican, Japanese, and Italian residents. For the freeways to work, homes were lost, communities were raised, mountains were moved, monuments were replaced with plaques, but something bigger was lost, and that was a more communal experience. The freeway would divide communities, spiritually and physically, and the noise and pollution would affect people who live there. Around the same time, the historic West Adams area, along with Sugar Hill, had some homes demolished to pave way for the 10 freeway. Included were dozens of beautiful Victorian and craftsman homes that were owned by prominent African Americans, a truly historic area. There were several historic battles over housing rights for African Americans, and these fights originated over Sugar Hill. The area of Sugar Hill was one of black prominence in Los Angeles. Actress Hattie McDaniel was the unofficial queen of the neighborhood. Her home was a staple of the Hollywood elite. It was a soiree house. By the time the urban planners came for Sugar Hill, many of the original families had left to other areas of Los Angeles, but still those beautiful homes with history were bulldozed. This was around 1963, and because the area had changed zoning restrictions to allow for multifamily homes, 
Sugar Hill and West Adams became overpopulated. The Los Angeles Sentinel had this to say. The road could have been built without cutting through the so-called Sugar Hill section. However, in order to miss Sugar Hill, it was said that the route would have to cut through Fraternity and Sorority Row around USC. Sorority and Fraternity Row still stands, and Sugar Hill doesn't, so you know who won out. If you drive through Boyle Heights down 4th Street, you'll find Hollenbeck Park. The 10th freeway was built right through it. The park's lake lies in its shadow. What happened to Boyle Heights and Sugar Hill is only a fraction of the lives and neighborhoods changed by the construction of the freeway throughout Los Angeles. Ebbets Field was built on Pigtown, a garbage dump. Disneyland was built on Orange Groves. Dodgers Stadium was built on existing lives at Chavez Ravine, an active neighborhood. Los Angeles is not the only city to displace its low-income residents in favor of other people's ideas of progress and spectacle, but it feels like LA has gotten really good at it, all the while boasting about how multicultural we are. LA has no history is an easier idea for some rather than LA has a history of building on top of itself and forgetting what was there before. For those who remember the roads of Chavez Ravine, LA is in a sparkling city of dreams. It's a dogfight. That's it for me today. Thank you for listening to a special not-so-giggly episode of LA Meekly. You can check out the podcast on iTunes Podcasts, Spotify, or our YouTube channel. Follow us on Instagram at LA underscore Meekly, on Twitter at LA Meekly, or on Facebook. And please, if you haven't read Stealing Home by Eric Nosbaum yet, please do yourself a favor and read it. You can get a copy from the Glendale Library of Arts and Culture. On that note, a big thank you to the Glendale Library of Arts and Culture and to Eric Nosbaum for letting me do this. Goodbye. <laughs>